choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? In that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you are listening to episode 289 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 13, Splashdown. We're now coming to the moment, the last moments of Apollo 13, as it comes in, as it begins its re-entry. The best thing we can do now is just to listen and hope. The last few seconds down to re-entry. At this point, there's very little anybody can do, including the astronauts, except wait as they come in through the uppermost fringes of the Earth's atmosphere. The computers put them on course. All anybody can do now is cross their fingers. That heat rolling up right now to that 5,000 degrees the ablative shield actually melts away. It is the, I think, Wally, that is still a secret formula, isn't it, that we... In mission control, the steady electronic hiss streamed into the ears of the men at the consoles. When it did, all conversation on the flight controller's loop, the backroom loops, and in the auditorium itself stopped. At the front of the room, the digital mission clock read 142 hours 38 minutes. When it reached 142 hours 42 minutes, Joe Kerwin would hail the ship. Communications blackout is the hardest time for teams in mission control, and Gene Krantz's white team was manning the consoles now. This is how he described the blackout experience for Apollo 13. During blackout, every team member does his own soul-searching, reviewing the decisions and the data, knowing that they had to be nearly perfect and knowing how tough perfection is. Every member of the white team on the ground, whether at the consoles, in the back rooms, or seated with Sim Supervisor, shared this common agony. Jim Lovell's description of the damage to the service module made this agony particularly acute. Controllers were trained not to worry about the things over which they had no control. We were now in the hands of God and a deadly tired crew executing a set of procedures written on scraps of paper in the command module, procedures that had not existed 18 hours ago. The teams knew the fragile hold we had on the many variables the many decisions we had made in the four days since the explosion. But this is the nature of our business, to live with risk. Everything now was irreversible as the spacecraft and crew went through the final breaking in the lowest part of the atmosphere. The heat was intense, preventing communications. The aerodynamic braking slowed the command module from five miles a second 
to less than 100 miles per hour when the chutes were to open. The glow of the ionized atmosphere surrounded the crew in brilliant fire orange as the temperatures soared outside the spacecraft. The control room was absolutely silent. The only noises were the hum of the electronics, the buzz of the air conditioning, and the occasional click of a Zippo lighter snapping open, followed by the rasp of the lighter wheel against flint. No one moved as if everyone were chained to his console. Cigarette smoke filled the room, creating a blue haze as we watched the track on the big world map tracing the path of the spacecraft to Earth. All eyes were on the clocks, counting down to the end of blackout. Blackout was an eternity. I always said a prayer for the crew at this time. We have about a minute and a half to go uh, during this period of blackout. Here in Mission Control, the uh, scene from the recovery uh, ship Iwo Jima has been flashed up on one of our large screens uh, for all of the flight controllers to watch. We have about one minute to go now from uh, time of end to blackout. We were pretty good at computing the blackout times, nailing the start and stop to within seconds. I worked it out in my mind. The beginning of the blackout occurred over Australia, as Retro had predicted. So the end of the blackout time should be on the nose. As the minutes passed, all eyes turned with a stare to the wall clocks as they counted down to the final few seconds. Less than 10 seconds now, uh, we will attempt to uh, contact Apollo 13 uh, through one of the Araya aircraft. Apollo 13 should be uh, out of blackout at this time. Uh, we're standing by for any reports of Araya acquisition. The Araya, a uh, C-135 type aircraft. When the clock hit all zeros, I told Kerwin, Joe, give them a call. Kerwin responded immediately. Odyssey Houston standing by, over. There was no response, only static. More seconds passed, and we called again. Odyssey Houston standing by, over. There was only static. Controllers pressed their earpieces farther into their ears, listening for the faintest signal. Kerwin called again. Odyssey Houston standing by, over. We were now almost a minute past the expected signal acquisition time. Still no response. Seconds turned into minutes and minutes into infinity. A sinking feeling, almost a dread, filled the room. When the wall clock rolled past one minute, we wondered what had gone wrong. I wanted to smash something, hold on to something. Was there some screw-up in the communication setup or relay? I told myself, they are there. We just are not hearing them. There was one irrevocable piece of data yet to come. There would be a sonic boom as the command module re-entered the atmosphere. When we received the report, we would know the crew was coming back to Earth. Quietly, in hushed tones, I called Dieterich, my retro. Chuck. Were the clocks good? In a whisper, he responded. They're good, Flight. We waited. The world waited. We were 1 minute 28 seconds past the expected acquisition time when a crackly report from a downrange aircraft broke the tension. 
Araya 4 has acquisition. I pounded the edge of the console. The room erupted, then quieted down quickly. In the movies, the controllers always stand up and cheer each mission event. But if a controller ever did that before the mission was over and the crew was on the carrier, that would be the last time he sat at the console. There was only one thought now on our minds. All we need now are the parachutes. Just the parachutes. The crew was almost home. Kerwin called again, and a few seconds later, we heard. Odyssey Houston standing by, over. Okay, go over. Okay, we read you, Jack. Just two words, but the intensity of the relief was overwhelming. The viewing room, the back rooms, and our instructors erupted again as they saw the shoots blossom on the TV. Odyssey Houston, we show you on the mains. It really looks great. An extremely loud applause here in Mission Control. In the control room, each controller has his moment of emotional climax. I find myself crying unabashedly. Then I try to suck it in, realizing this is inappropriate. But it doesn't work. It only gets worse. I was standing at the console crying. When the crew hits the water, we once again sit at our consoles. Our job is over only when the crew is on the carrier and we have handed our responsibilities to the aircraft carrier task force commander. When this happened, we finally realized that flight control and the people in the back rooms, factories, and laboratories had won the day. Our crew was home. We, the crew, contractors, and controllers had done the impossible. The human factor had carried the day. Years later, someone asked Fred Hayes why the communications blackout lasted so long. Here's his response. Truthfully, it's never been uh, scientifically answered. I jokingly told uh, Ron Howard we, we did that. We just didn't answer because it gave him more drama for his movie. <laughs> but, but no, uh, it, uh, no, scientifically, no one could uh, discern why that was. I talked to Gene Krantz about that uh, not too long after the flight, and Gene said, no, we had your dead center in your flight path coming in, and uh, there was we could not, there was no explanation for why uh, the, the heat shield and the heat sheath uh, caused that blackout to last longer. One of the uh, uh, guidos, uh, fighters rather, flight dynamics officers, had rerun some data and thought we ended up from certain venting that we'd end up a little bit shallow. And he thought maybe the entry ended up a little shallower and that had caused the length of extension of the time. But truthfully, the data didn't, uh, couldn't account for that much time. So no, it's one of those uh, unknowns. Of course, in the spacecraft, the re-entry experience was different. For the most part, the astronauts enjoyed a smooth ride. This is how Lovell described it. As the ion storm surrounding our ship subsided, the steadily thickening layers of atmosphere slowed our 25,000 mile per hour plunge to a comparatively gentle 300 mile per hour freefall. Outside the windows, the angry red had given way to paler orange, then a pastel pink, 
and finally a familiar blue. During the long minutes of blackout, the ship had crossed beyond the nighttime side of the earth and back into the day. I looked at my G-meter. It read 1.0. My altimeter read 35,000 feet. Stand by for drogue shoots, and let's hope our pyros are good. The altimeter ticked from 28,000 feet to 26,000 feet. At the stroke of 24,000, we heard a pop. Looking through our windows, we saw two bright streams of fabric. Then the streams billowed open. We got two good drogues, Swaggart shouted to the ground. Yeah, we got two drogues. Roger that. A report of uh, two good drogues. Our instrument panel could no longer measure the slow speed of our ship or its nearly insignificant altitude, but I knew from the flight plan profile that at the moment we should be barely 20,000 feet above the water and falling at just 175 miles per hour. Less than a minute later, the two drogues jettisoned themselves and three others appeared followed by the three main chutes. These tents of fabric streamed for an instant and then, with a jolt that rocked us in our couches, flew open. I instinctively looked at the dashboard, but the velocity indicator registered nothing. I knew that we were now moving at just over 20 miles per hour. Odyssey Houston, we show you on the mains. It really looks great. Inside the spacecraft, we knew Mission Control and the sailors on the Iwo Jima were applauding. I took a final look at the altimeter, and then, unconsciously, I took hold of the edges of my couch. Swaggart and Hayes unconsciously copied me. Hang on. If this is anything like Apollo 8, it could be rough. Thirty seconds later, we felt a sudden but surprisingly painless deceleration as our ship sliced smoothly into the water. Instantly, my crewmates looked up toward their portholes. There was water running down the outside of all five panes. Fellows, we're home. And this is how Fred Hayes remembered the experience. This is the Earth as we're headed back in. Uh, coming, as you return, you end up coming back in at the same velocity you left, about 25,000 miles an hour. And the upper entry was kind of strange in the fact we got rained on a little bit because it had been so cold and the command module turned off that long. Water had slowly built up from our perspiration and uh, humidity had built up and water, the instrument panel, when Jack and I went to power up that vehicle, we had to use wash rags to wipe off the panel to read the instruments that were just covered with water. And a lot of that fell out on us at the front end of entry. But otherwise, uh, another one of those miracles, this, this machine, this command module that was never supposed to be powered down, came on, came to life, and gave us the second most accurate splashdown of the program. Only Apollo 10 had a better uh, hit the water at a closer point to the mark from the ship of, of, the, of lights. And finally, this is how many of us experienced the splashdown of Apollo 13. With Walter Cronkite, Wally Sherall, and Richard O'Brien from the deck of the Iwo Jima. We ought to be hearing something. We're now uh, should have been out of that blackout by a minute, 15 seconds. 
Coming up now on three minutes until time of drogue deployment. Standing by for any reports of acquisition. We've had a report that Araya 4 aircraft uh, has acquisition of uh -huh. signal. Ah, uh -huh. through the blackout. Feeling better. <laughs> now just the shoot. Just the shoot. Odyssey Houston standing by. Over. Okay, we read you, Jack. That was uh, Jim Lovell responding with the OK, Joe. <laughs> Checking on direction there. That was Command Module Pilot Jack Swagger. I thought that was Swagger. We're looking at the weather on TV, and it looks just as advertised, real good. That's funny, isn't it? There they are in Houston, Texas, telling the spacecraft plummeting down through the atmosphere up over the Pacific with the weather below them is good. They see on a picture. <laughs> the uh, drogue chutes should come out in uh, another one minute and 30 seconds. <coughs> These people watching the CBS monitor Grand Central Station near the blue sky over the Pacific. It's been uh, a minute away now from a uh, time of drogue deployment. 16 and a half foot drogue chute pulls out the the uh, three main chutes or helps stabilize the spacecraft preparatory to pulling them out and a little pilot chute actually pulls them out coming out in 10 or 15 seconds we are looking out there less than uh, 30 seconds away now from uh, drogue deployment uh, the uh, drogue deployment, these two chutes uh, will uh, provide uh, braking and uh, stabilization prior to main chute deployment. I'm standing by now for continuing to monitor. Odyssey Houston, uh, standing by for your run uh, out 67 uh, when you get it over. <laughs> Animation shows it. Let's hope to hear it here. Roger that. Out the drogue. They see it? They oh, say they can beautiful. see it. A report of uh, two good drogues coming up now for main shoots. Listen to the excitement on the Iwo Jima. They can <laughs> call in Richard O'Brien on the Iwo Jima. Come in, Richard. That was a chopper. That's a chopper. That is it. That was it. Oh, great news. <laughs> The first shoot, we can see the, uh, Those the are the mains. Look at that. Those are the three mains. That's the best sight. Practically <laughs> on the side here. Oh, boy. Now the three shoots have opened up. And riding the other two widely down. Just a beautiful sight to see. Uh, just guessing now that that does not look to be much more than five miles or so uh, from here. Applause is Apollo 13 on the main shoot. The shoots are open right on the It was just exactly where they uh, they said it would be uh, off the bow, and uh, now the uh, the calculation is uh, four miles uh, dead ahead. So it's uh, four miles. It should be. Uh, just a, a perfect uh, pickup here. The, the weather good and uh, the men back safely. There was a lot of apprehension, of course, as to whether the 
speed this accurate on, on this one coming back, but it's uh, just absolutely perfect. Now you can see the uh, the helicopter uh, teams moving in there now, circling around at just about cloud level as Apollo 13 glides softly down into the Pacific. It's a little vending of the uh, fuel going up through that. That's the uh, uh, last bit of the uh, attitude fuel being vented, just while well, he's telling uh, us as well. The smoke you see is a vending of RCS uh, propellants, a reaction control system propellants. between uh, the recovery helicopter and uh, the crew of Apollo 13. The floor of the mission operations control room uh, now crowded. Uh, and uh, there are visible smiles on There are going to be some big fat cigars right in there in mission control. <laughs> from the Iwo Jima that uh, Apollo 13 is descending uh, at a point four miles due south of the ship. Apollo 13 and recovery passing through 1,000 feet. About 15 seconds away from landing. Oh boy. That's casual. Apollo 13 and recovery passing through 1,000 feet. <laughs> that's what you call formation flying, isn't it? <laughs> of course, that's just about what it is. Notice the slight angle now, you can see that that's to make the entry in the water easier while it's coming up. How about it? Stable one and riding comfortable means that they're riding right side up. They didn't uh, flop over in the water. At least they got that break on that whole flight. Splashed in stable one. Uh, that's uh, with the apex cover up, out of the water. The vertical axis are approximately 15 degrees. Yeah, there's Odyssey, the end of the Odyssey. from the Lone Star State. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 289 of the Space Rocket History Podcast, entitled Apollo 13, Splashdown. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. If you're looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 116 are available on the Archive Podcast. Just search for Space Rocket History Archive. 
It should be available on all pod catchers. Today, we salute our satellite emoji donors. These elite donors have supported the podcast for four years in a row and received the satellite emoji next to their name on the donors page. Satellite emoji donors, thank you for your continued support. As usual, I would like to credit my sources for this episode, Lost Moon by Jim Lovell, A Man on the Moon by Andrew Chaikin, Failure is Not an Option by Gene Krantz, Flight by Chris Kraft, NASA Apollo 13 Technical Air to Ground Voice Transcription, the Internet Archive, Wikipedia, and the Johnson Space Center. How about that for a happy ending? The crew returns home safely with a near-perfect splashdown. The impossible was done. The decisions were correct and the execution was outstanding. If this was not NASA's finest hour, it's certainly within the top two. Folks, I thought I was going to finish up Apollo 13 this week, but I found so much more material that I would like to cover, so I decided to go ahead and and finish up next week of Apollo 13, not taking any shortcuts. As you may have guessed, we have been in Texas the past few weeks. And we have had a great time thus far. The best of times was getting the the behind-the-scenes tour of Johnson Space Center. I want to give my highest salutation to Mr. Lewis, who spent two days giving Mrs. SRH and me a fantastic tour of Johnson Space Center. We went into every building we could and saw everything we could. I was awestruck most of the time. And Mr. Lewis spent so much personal time with us, I certainly do appreciate that. That was just outstanding. I will always remember this. Okay, folks, we have something big coming up for next week. We have the sixth anniversary of the podcast. We started way back in February of 2013, and it will be six years next week. When I started, I certainly did not expect it to take six years, but it just sort of evolved, and I found more things to put in, and, you know, initial estimates are way low, I guess. We'll talk more about that next week. Okay, I've placed the audio and some pictures for this episode on the homepage, spacerockethistory.com. Please check that out. For those of you who are enjoying the content provided here, please consider supporting the podcast if you're financially able. You may have noticed that we don't have any commercials or ad revenue. We are entirely listener-supported. To support the podcast, go to spacerockethistory.com, click on the orange donate button to make a one-time donation or the Patreon link to make small monthly donations. All donations are rewarded with their name on the donor's page at the level they choose to donate, as well as entry into the drawing each week. We were pleased to receive four donations to support the podcast over the past week. Michael S. from the UK donated at the Orion level and earned his moon emoji. Gary A. donated at the Apollo level. Justin B. sent in another donation this year and moved to the Apollo level with rocket emoji. Justin F. pledged on Patreon at the Mercury level. So our Patreons are back up to 218. That's where we were in December. So we have a goal of reaching 300 by the end of this year. So far, we're not doing too good. (laughs) Our total donors for 2019 have reached 264, with a goal of reaching 600 in 2019. 
for the 264 of you who have already donated in 2019. I certainly appreciate it. This week, we're giving away the SRH logo magnet to one of our lucky donors. Mrs. SRH randomly selected Tobias Lang. Tobias, if you would email me, mike at spacerockethistory.com, and tell me your address, I will mail this out to you. Okay, folks, that's all I have for this week. I'll try to have episode 290 posted for next Thursday. Hey, we're almost to 300. I guess that we will begin the countdown next week. All right, folks, thanks for listening. So long for now.